Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is Episode 8, The Second Battle of Pearl Harbor, 1947, Part 2. I'm Keith Pilly. Uh, as you might have caught there, this is Part 2 of a two-part episode. Um, you, at the very least, should go back and listen to the previous episode to have any idea what's going on here. Really, you should probably go back and start from the beginning, um, but, you know, new listeners always welcome. Anyway, um, let's get right into it since we left on a cliffhanger. Last week, as Halsey's third fleet was retreating to Pearl Harbor after the disaster of Operation Typhoon, a second masked sea creature attack led by the kelp man struck Pearl Harbor itself. We went in great detail last week into the attempts by a flotilla of PT boats and a handful of destroyers and cruisers to deflect the attack and the utter uselessness of said efforts. This week, the conclusion of the Second Battle of Pearl Harbor brings more disaster to the Navy and to the United States, but it arguably also produces the conflict's first public hero. Or maybe the right word is martyr. So remember, we left off last week with the destruction of the last handful of surface ships trying to defend the entrance to Pearl Harbor, with the catastrophic destruction of the cruisers St. Paul and Houston, there were no major surface vessels left on hand to counter the kelp man and the other sea creatures swarming into the channel. The effort to repel the creatures from Pearl Harbor was not limited to the sea, of course. One of the singular American failures in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 had been the disposition of planes at Hickam Field, where planes caught on the ground and parked wing-to-wing -wing in a big mass made it easy for Japanese pilots to destroy the entire American air presence in one quick blow. Still stung from that experience, years later, that situation was handled much better in 1947. At Hickam, Pilots and crews from both the Navy and the Air Corps were racing towards planes as soon as the sirens started. Most of the Navy's Pacific air power was on board Halsey's carriers at the moment, currently days out on their retreat from Operation Typhoon. But the Pearl Harbor Army Air Corps complement was another story, fully loaded with its standard complement of Mustang and Lightning fighters and two squadrons of B-17 heavy bombers most of whose crews were already working feverishly to scramble the planes into the air. Between the two air complements stationed at Hickam, around 30 fighters of various types, a handful of Navy dive bombers, and 12 heavy bombers scrambled immediately, with further planes trickling into the air as the battle developed and their crews got them ready. One of the pilots rushing down the runway was Major Dennis Young, a four-year veteran eager to see action. Much of Young's war service had been taken up with training and non-combat rotations in rear areas. Born on a farm in Marshalltown, Iowa, Young had been scouted by the Chicago Cubs before the war, but was unable to make his tryout because of planting season. Stationed in Australia during the war, he'd actually made a minor splash in an informal Australian baseball league dominated by Americans stationed in the country. Young had enjoyed his wartime Australian sojourn, but spoke bitterly to friends and family about feeling like he hadn't contributed meaningfully to the war. 
His squadron mates later recalled him talking often and at great length about hoping that the conflict with the sea creatures would give him a second chance, quote, to earn his keep, end quote. Keep that in mind. Once aloft, the defensive effort in the air was poorly coordinated, with conflicting orders radiating out from the separate Navy and Air Corps command structures. Plane dispositions had been set up to allow fighters to scramble first, so before and during the PT boat's charge against the creatures, a small cloud of Navy Hellcats and Air Corps Lightnings and Mustangs swarmed low over the creatures, swooping and diving in repeated strafing runs. As always, machine guns proved completely ineffectual against sea creatures, both the massed smaller creatures near the surface and against the ever-rising kelp man who complicated the situation by swatting at planes that came within reach. As the PT boats were being decimated, Captain Kai Herbensis, a dive bomber pilot and the senior naval aviator in the air, barked into his radio, quote, God damn it, you idiots, pull back. You ain't doing shit. I've got nine hell divers up here loaded and ready to dive if you'll get out of the goddamn way. As always, I apologize for the profanity. Um, you know, sailors, they're a salty bunch. Startled by the saltiness of Urbansis's transmission, the fighters dispersed up to patrol altitude. Urbansis's flight of dive bombers, a mix of planes left behind from the typhoon operation for scouting and sentry duty, and a few that had been under repair, nosed over and began their dives from 5,000 feet. Now, as we discussed many times, I think, during the war, dive bombing had emerged as the most effective form of aerial bombing in naval combat. Diving from high altitude towards a target and releasing the bomb at the last moment before pulling away was difficult and dangerous, but it allowed for unmatched accuracy in bomb delivery. The planes in Urbansis's flight were all Curtis SB-2C Helldivers, a fast and reliable carrier-based bomber, that had been in wide use at the end of the war. Most of the planes were loaded with 500-pound fragmentation bombs, the easiest thing to attach as they had scrambled. With the superior accuracy allowed by dive bombing, all nine delivered their bombs into the roiling mass of sea creatures currently engulfing the PT boats. And uh, by the way, it's generally believed that more of the PT boat crews might have survived in the water if not for this and subsequent bombing runs. Um, the bombs, exploding on contact with the surface, proved significantly more effective than everything else that had been tried previously that day. Eight of the explosions blasted patches of sea clear of creatures, at least. A ninth struck close enough to the kelp man to inflict minor damage to the creature's torso. The plane that struck that blow was Captain Urbansis's, and it paid a heavy price. The dive arc required to bomb the kelp man required the plane to come within reach of the creature's fists as it tried to pull up, and Urbansis and his radium and tail gunner, Chief Michael Ashmore, were swatted into the sea. The eight remaining Helldivers pulled up safely and tried to reform. Their attack had been the most successful of anything tried so far that day, but even then the number of creatures swarming into the harbor was great enough that nine bombs weren't enough to make a difference and now they ran into one of the great limitations of the carrier-based dive bomber. They were essentially a single-shot weapon, able to strike once and then needing to be reloaded. Commander Alex Moore, the senior of the surviving dive bomber pilots, ordered the flight to return to Hickam Field in the hopes that the planes could be reloaded and strike again. 
12 heavier Air Corps bombers, B-17s, had scrambled from Hickam mere minutes after the smaller Navy planes had departed. As Urbancis's helldivers circled away from their bomb drops, Colonel Nathan Harding led the formation of heavy bombers above at an altitude of 7,000 feet to prepare their own attack. The bombers were hardly in position to make a big impact. In the hurry to get them aloft and out of harm's way, each plane had been loaded with whatever handful of bombs were readily available. None of the 12 carried more than a handful of bombs. Moreover, the war years had proved over and over with numbing repetition that high-level bombers might be effective against stationary targets on land, but were as good as useless against mobile targets on the sea. No progress on this front had been made in the post-war years. Harding tried to mitigate this truth by dropping from a relatively low level, but that wasn't enough. The flight's bombs blasted areas of the sea around the surging core of creatures, but to less effect than the dive bombers. A full half of the bombs dropped by the B-17s exploded on empty water. Harding radioed a desultory report and led the flight, including the B-17 piloted by Major Dennis Young, up to circle the harbor at 10,000 feet to keep them out of reach until it was clear that Hickam Field would be safe. It wasn't obvious when that time would be. As the wreckage of the destroyers and the cruiser Houston were swarmed by smaller sea creatures, the Kelpman and Lesser Kelpman made their way to Pearl Harbor's dry dock facilities, enormous gated concrete boxes surrounded with cranes and heavy equipment for ship repair, and began pummeling them first from the water and then climbing out and attacking them from land. Admiral Stewart, regaining a measure of control over the overall defense effort from a command post on top of the former Sinkpack headquarters building, ordered the cloud of fighters to strafe the larger creatures away, but this proved as ineffectual as before and cost a handful of fighters that were swatted down. Within minutes, the dry docks were rendered utterly useless their sea gates ripped to pieces, their cranes torn down, their walls hopelessly structurally compromised. What had been a row of mammoth, ship-sized cubbies bristling with repair gear was now a pile of smoking concrete rubble, angling down from shore into the water with ruined cranes and gantries poking out here and there, and a large oil slick spreading out into the channel. It was clear that Pearl Harbor's ability to repair damaged ships had been eliminated for at least a matter of months. An increasingly desperate Stuart continued to marshal his dwindling defense resources as the creatures moved on from the dry docks to attacking other shore facilities. The two kelp men, primary and lesser, waded over to the series of piers where battleships moored and pounded the structures into rubble. They then waded back onto land and approached the complex network of tanks, hoses, and pipes that had extended from the base's tank farm onto the piers, allowing docked ships to refuel. The creatures laid into the network with ferocious gusto, tearing hoses out of their fittings, smashing pipes, rupturing tanks, and generally laying waste to the circulatory system that made the base function. They moved quickly through the metal and rubber jungle, turning chaotic but orderly machinery into twisted, broken garbage, bleeding oil. This, by the way, is roughly when that picture I talked about way back uh, at the very beginning of the show in episode one, you know, the picture of the Marine getting stomped on by the Kelp Man. This is about when that picture was taken. Um, and um, 
On top of that, the Marines at Pearl Harbor definitely did not just stand by idly. In fact, around this time, a crew of enterprising Marines working on their own set up a mortar and were trying to direct fire uh, onto the kelp creatures. Admiral Stewart ordered them off when it became clear that their near misses were damaging shore facilities that they were trying to preserve. In the meantime, a handful of surviving PT boats lined up for another attack out in the harbor, but they were again swamped and destroyed by lesser creatures. 10,000 feet above all this chaos, Major Dennis Young circled his B-17 and looked down in despair as the creatures laid waste to the base he'd been charged with defending. As the kelp man worked its ruinous way through the fuel facilities, Young seems to have reached a decision. He keyed the plane's intercom, and all of the speech here is taken from the post-war testimony of Captain Andrew Allen, who was Young's co-pilot. Quote, Okay, fellas, this is Young. You're not going to like this, but I need you all to double-check your chutes and bail out. I am going to circle wide out on the next pass so that you can jump inland. When I give you the signal, you are all going out of this plane. End quote. Andrew Allen remembers answering in disbelief. What's going on, Skipper? Young's response. I gave you an order, Allen. I gave you all an order. You better be checking these chutes right now because you are not going to be in this plane in five minutes. End quote. Allen recalls Young then turning to him, disconnecting his intercom mic briefly, and just yelling in the cockpit, quote, We haven't scratched that damn thing, and there isn't going to be a base left in half an hour if we don't find a way to stop it. He's got a hell of a lot of petroleum around him right now. Move your ass, get out of the goddamn plane. Young then reconnected his intercom, quote, Coming around to the jump point. Everybody get ready to bail in 30 seconds, end quote. Colonel Harding's voice came out across the radio. Quote, Young, you're off course. What's going on? Young replied, Sorry, sir, I got distracted, moving back into position. Young then switched from his radio to talk to other planes to the intercom just to talk within his plane. Okay, you sons of bitches, get out of here and happy landings. Jump! End quote. Five figures popped out of the B-17's side hatch, chutes billowing out shortly afterwards. Harding's voice rang out from the radio, but Young didn't bother answering as he swung his plane around onto a course bearing on the kelp man and brought it into a dive. Admiral Stewart talked after the conflict to the FCDP about what happened next. Quote, By now, I was in an observation post, elevated a little bit above the old sink pack building, and I had a pretty good view of the whole disaster as I tried to coordinate the defense. I didn't see Young's plane move out of the holding circle, but one of my aides got my attention as the chutes started popping out of it. As soon as that happened, I knew what was going on. We all did. It couldn't have been more obvious. I grabbed a radio and ordered the plane, I didn't know then who it was, I just knew that it was an Air Corps B-17, to return to station, but to be honest, my heart wasn't really in the order. I knew what the pilot was doing, and I thought that maybe it was the only thing. If he was up there and he thought that that was what he needed to do, I thought maybe he was right. He didn't show any sign of listening to me, and I didn't repeat the order. Colonel Harding kept ordering him off, but not any more effectively. We saw Young pick up a little altitude as he angled his plane towards the kelp man, and then nose over into a pretty steep dive. 
The goddamn kelp man was so busy tearing up fuel lines that I don't think it was even aware anything was happening for a solid minute of Young's dive. By the time it did realize something was up, it was too late. Young brought that 17 in dead straight on, and he must have been doing 500 knots or more after that dive. The kelp man kind of swatted at him as he approached, the way it had the fighters, but a B-17's a hell of a lot more massive than a Hellcat. And Young was going a lot faster. And this time the swatting didn't do much but break a wing off. If anything, that just made it worse. The swat busted up the plane's fuselage just enough to douse the whole creature with fuel. And remember, it was standing in the middle of a bunch of wrecked ship fueling gear with spilled oil all over the damn place and leaking out into the water, making a hell of a slick. Young's plane hit the kelp man in what I guess you'd call the chest and exploded immediately. The monster just went up like a torch. Just the goddamnedest thing. Looked like this giant man on fire waving its arms. I can't describe to you how it felt to see that. Like I said, I didn't know then who Dennis Young was. But I knew right then that whoever had been flying that B-17 was one heroic son of a bitch. The creature was writhing around on fire. Obviously in agony. Trying to make its way back into the water. All of the fuel on the ground caught fire too, and the dock facilities were just a damned inferno. The fire spread really quickly to the slick that was spreading out into the harbor, and my god, it just looked like hell. I wasn't at Pearl in December of 1941, but I can't imagine how it could have been much worse. I had a feeling of hope, honestly, in that moment, that maybe we'd stopped the thing. Then I remembered all those men in the water. End quote. Stewart's hopes were well-founded. Young's sacrifice had grievously wounded the kelp man, and the burning creature desperately made its way to the water, suffering further burns as it went, and tried to submerge itself. The shallow water in Pearl Harbor meant that part of the creature was always above the surface and on fire as it made its way out. After the battle, by the way, Dennis Young was quickly awarded a posthumous Medal of Honor nominated jointly by Admiral Stewart and Military Governor of Hawaii, General Arthur Peters. Curiously, the back and forth with Washington over this nomination marked the very last phase of Peters' active cooperation with the United States federal government before the Hawaiian secession crisis, which uh, we will get to. The Lesser Kelp Man wasn't as fortunate as its larger counterpart. It burned to a husk in the refueling facilities before it could make it to water. The inferno on the surface, fueled by the oil slick, killed many of the lesser sea creatures outright, and the remainder made their way out of the harbor with the wounded but still very much alive kelp man. Unfortunately, Stewart's fears were as well-founded as his hopes had been, and hundreds of men burned in the water. The creatures had been turned away, but the attack had been devastating. Thousands of men were dead, with thousands more seriously wounded. Nearly every combatant ship or boat present at Pearl Harbor had been destroyed or heavily damaged, and the base's ability to perform its basic functions of ship repair and servicing had been annihilated. As lookouts reported the creatures disappearing out to sea, a shaken Admiral Stewart ordered a top-priority radio signal to Halsey's force, still en route from New Caledonia. Quote, Major creature attack on Pearl Harbor. Creatures repelled, but not before inflicting catastrophic damage on base facilities. 
Pearl Harbor currently zero capacity to receive Third Fleet. Com Third Fleet advised alter course to San Diego, end quote. Although in terms of loss of both life and ships, the Second Battle of Pearl Harbor had been less disastrous than the first, as a strategic matter, it was an absolute calamity. The fulcrum of the Navy's presence in the Pacific had been eliminated as a functional naval base, and a major U.S. territory sat isolated and unconnected. For now, for the first time in decades, the U.S. Navy was a coastal defense force. And that is it for this episode, um, and you know, for the two-parter on the Second Battle of Pearl Harbor. Thank you for listening. Uh, please join me next week as, after the cascading crises of the past few episodes, things really start to break down. Uh, finally, I guess, as always, I would like to th- ask you to pass the word on the show if you know anyone who might conceivably be interested um, or could be persuaded to be interested or, you know, you just you, you know a community of uh, people who are into cool shit like this, um, you know, please let them know. Please let anybody know. Thanks a lot, and I will talk to you again soon in a week or so, and in the meantime, be well. Them squids they didn't think about just who they was attacking. Way anchor, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Line up all them Anchors away, son.